Hey, good morning, everyone. How you guys doing? You know, uh, when Clint does announcements, I find out things that I had no other way of finding out, like, who knew NASCAR was starting today? Like, I just, I had no idea that that was going on. I knew the Olympics had ended, but NASCAR, that's a thing. Okay, we're in the Gospel of Mark. Uh... And we're in chapter 8. So if you have a Bible, why don't you open up to chapter 8? We're going to continue this study. And you may not realize this, but what we're doing today is we're kind of moving from what I would call Act 1 in the Gospel of Mark to Act 2. And you can actually take uh, Mark's gospel and split it into three different parts. Act one is set in Galilee, and Mark is answering kind of the beginning questions about who Jesus is. And then what's great is he actually explains it to him three different times in this little section. We're just going to talk about one of them today. And as he's explaining it to him, he's confronting all the different things that they get wrong about what he's doing. And he's confronting all the things that we get wrong about who Jesus is and what he's doing. And so you'll probably feel confronted by this passage. I'm just giving you like warning up front. Like I feel confronted by it. And because what's going on here is he's challenging all the ways that we try to fit God into a box that makes us feel comfortable with our lives. And he's doing something totally different. So we're looking at Acts, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, it's second act. <laughs> uh, Mark chapter, two, uh, chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Mark chapter 8, starting in verse 22. Here's how it reads. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand, led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes, and then, the man, then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. He saw everything clearly. Jesus had sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. All right, there's a couple things here. I'm going to talk about like all the different components of this, but there's a couple things here I just wanted to highlight right away. I love the way that the man doesn't like come to Jesus on his own. Like he's got some folks that bring him there. If you were here last week or listened to us last week, you heard Steph talk about how incredibly important it is to have community, to have people in our lives who love us enough to actually bring us face to face with God so that he can meet our needs, so that he can heal us, so that he can like, do stuff in our lives. Sometimes we don't have the strength or the courage to actually just go to God on our own, and it's so incredibly helpful to have friends who will say, I don't care if you don't even like me right now. Like, I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to help you get to a place where you can begin to, hey, my mic is just a little hot. Would you mind just bumping it just down a hair? That way I don't feel like, there. Now I don't feel like I have to hold back. Um, so, where was I? Oh, having friends that actually bring us face-to-face with Jesus. And take the risk to do that. Because do you ever feel like, like I do, that sometimes it's like you're having a conversation, something kind of pops up in the conversation, you're like, man... Like, the only person who can actually help you right now is Almighty God. Let's just go to him. But it feels a little intimidating to just say that. I know I'm a pastor, so I'm supposed to say that. But it still feels intimidating. Do you guys ever feel that? 
It's like it's so good to have friends that will actually lead you that way. And it's so incredibly good to like, actually be that friend for other people that you will lead them that way. If you want to hear more about that, Stephanie dove into that last week uh, as we were uh, preaching together. It's always a risk worth taking, even if you face possible rejection. Because the kingdom of God is at hand, Mark chapter 1, it's available to anyone who will turn towards God. Like it's right there. God's kingdom is there. And so last week it was... It was awesome because we talked about this and then many of you, like we watched, like you grabbed a friend or a, a partner's hand and you just brought him up for prayer. It's like, that's so incredibly powerful when you do that. And then a second part that I noticed in this passage is I love the way that the healing Jesus is doing isn't at all designed to kind of grow a crowd or impress a crowd. Like, he's actually, like, I'm going to talk a little bit about more why that's important in a moment, but his compassion and his power is really directed to this man very personally. Like, he pulls him aside and he works with him personally. Now, you might think, hey, it's kind of gross to spit on somebody's eyes and do that. And he's like, well, yeah, it is kind of gross today to do that. But it, living in a, in, a, in a very dry culture and living in a place where water was pretty scarce, that one of the ways, one of the gifts that Jesus gave to that man was really personally interacting with him in a way that he could experience and he could feel. And he pulled him aside from the crowd. Listen, we don't pray for one another so that we have stories to tell. We don't pray for one another and expect God to do big things so we could write like our next book. We don't pray for one another and do that kind of stuff and, and see God heal people so we can put it on YouTube and try to attract a big crowd. Like we pray for one another because God loves people. And, and, and he wants to interact with us very personally in that. Like we, we pray for one another and we want to participate in seeing God's kingdom come because we love people enough to want to see them get restored and set free and healed in different areas of their lives. And that's it. And so in our small groups, like on the weekend up here and in, in front at, at Vineyard, if you're here in person, it's like, like we, we don't like highlight or try to, you know, post on socials like all the different cool things that God's doing in people's lives because it's kind of between them and God and we're kind of getting to be for lack of a better term the midwife of helping them experience what God's doing in their lives it's not the midwife's job to post on social media all the cool babies that she gets to help right that'd just be kind of gross she just gets to be there and help that happen. That's, that's like what you and I get to do in these moments as we pray for people. It's not about us, the people praying. It's not even about our faith. Like you just have to have enough faith to try it. To turn to the person next to you and go, hey, could I pray for you right now? And then the third thing that I'd highlight from this passage is um, uh, this, is, you know, we'll pray for one another as many times as it takes until there's no one left to pray for one another. This is the only instance in the Gospels where we see Jesus pray for somebody more than once. And I don't know about you, but I'm so thankful Mark put it in here. Because I often, most of the time, have to pray for people more than once. There's some people I've been praying for for my whole life. Ever since I became a follower of Christ uh, about 45 years ago now. 
that I've been praying for for that whole time for God to do a couple things in their lives. And I haven't seen it yet. But I'm going to keep praying because I know that that's how God works. Do you remember that little story in um, Luke chapter 18 about the persistent widow who kept knocking? Like, I'm going to be like that woman, right? If you haven't read that, read it again, Luke chapter 18. We live in the midst of the kingdom of God coming and not here yet. It's the already and the not yet of the kingdom. It's come and it's coming and it will come. And not everyone we pray for is healed and not everyone we witness to is converted. And sometimes it's progressive rather than instant. And yet we press in and we keep leaning in on this. We'll pray for one another as long as it takes. So that's talking about what does it mean for Jesus to be king in the midst of our suffering? Let me switch gears and read the next little part and I want to talk about what does it mean for Jesus to be king from a biblical point of view. Starting in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. <laughs> I'm going to get to that last couple warnings. You, you notice as this story and Mark has been heating up, every time Jesus says something or every time there's a bit of a revelation from God, he tells everybody to be quiet. We'll get to that in just a second. He asks the key question in this little passage. This is the beginning of Act two in the Gospel of Mark. He asks the key question that every single human being will have to answer at some point in history. Who do you say I am? It is such a cool little thing that happens right here in this passage, right? Like, and, 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 and the, the whole thing of, like, of humans trying to come up with crazy explanations to describe what they don't understand. Sometimes we do it through conspiracy theories. Sometimes we do it through just goofy theories. Like that whole stuff was circling around Jesus, right? Some were saying that John the Baptist, who was recently beheaded, must have got his head screwed back on and raised from the dead. And that's who Jesus is. Reaching even further back, like there's this Old Testament prophecy about Elijah circling back around again before God shows up on the scene. And so maybe this is Elijah. Jesus actually pointed to John the Baptist as being the fulfillment of that Elijah prophecy earlier on. So after starting in a general way, saying, who do people say I am? Jesus wheels around and makes it really quite personal. I don't know about you guys. Have you guys ever experienced like you're kind of reading scripture, you're talking to somebody, you're praying, and you feel like all, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit kind of wheels around and makes it really personal to you? Like maybe this, maybe this doesn't happen to you guys. I'm reading through a passage and it feels really convicting for somebody I know. There's somebody in my life that should really read this passage. Maybe I'll text it to them. They should like apply it to their life. Does that ever, that ever happen to you guys? If, if you nudge your, your, your partner or your kids next to you, it's not fair right now. And then all of a sudden... It's like as I'm praying, as I'm thinking through it, I feel like the Holy Spirit goes, yeah, that probably could be good for them, Michael, but what about you? And it's like, 
oh, dang. Like, this just got really intense. I left my Bible open. practiced at keeping the personal nature of some of these things at arm's length. We are well trained at having multiple screens between us and reality. Between us and what's really happening. Did you ever, did you watch any of the Olympics? Anybody watch any of the Olympics? At some point, did you see somebody just mess up? And did you think or say to the TV, what are you doing? And sometimes we even think, I could do better than that. Seriously? I saw somebody post on Twitter and I love this. At the beginning of the Olympics, they should just have a few of us who have never done some of this stuff get out there and try it. I took some of my friends curling a few years ago. It was hilarious. Like trying to get back up. Just like once you get down in the position and you're pushing the stone, try to get back up without just rolling over and then getting on your hands and knees and getting back up, like looking like a sick dog. I was dressed nice. But trying to get back up off the ice after that? Or trying to get the thing to actually go the place that you want it to go? It's like, all that stuff is so much, we are so conditioned to like be looking at life through a screen, looking at relationship with God through a screen, and never letting it get very close. Holy Spirit, would you break through the screens in our lives, even right now in this moment? And allow us to hear your personal question. Who do you say I am? God, would you make this for us kind of a holy, frightening moment like I think it was for them? All right? God leans in like that. You know what we do? We do like the woman at the well. The woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus leans into her and she goes... Well, let me ask you a different question. Like, tell me about how worship is supposed to take place, right? We're like, we hear God get really close to us and we do something like, well, that's really interesting, Jesus, but what about the dinosaurs? Like pterodactyls, like, can they actually even fly? Some of you guys are really smart and you're like, Michael, pterodactyls aren't dinosaurs. They're reptiles. I go, I know that. Just hang with me for a minute, right? You're doing the exact thing I'm talking about at this moment. Jesus is saying, who do you say I am? I think whatever confusion or whatever other things are going on, he calls us to personal accountability. Think about how everybody's been responding to him. Mark chapter 1. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, who is this? It's like a brand new way to teach with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. Mark chapter 4. They were terrified and they asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves, the snowstorms obey him. That was just me adding that. (laughs) Mark chapter 7. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He's done everything well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Listen, if God's kingdom is here, if God's power and presence is here, if we, in the story we just read about the blind man, if God is actually here, if he's actually here, that means God is actually here. Like he's actually doing stuff. And so at some point, every single one of us have to answer the question, who do you say Jesus really is? Who is he?
These passages, it's easy to miss the overwhelming response of Peter here. We are separated by so much culture and so much history. For Peter to call Jesus the Messiah means that he is saying Jesus is the anointed king. He is saying Jesus is the Davidic warrior in the line of King David promised throughout the scriptures to arrive at the ends of the age. That he's going to lead Israel in battle against her enemies and establish God's rule and righteousness throughout the land that has been cleansed. And if Jesus is king, that means all other kings, including Caesar, will be dethroned. Suddenly, the geographical context for what's happening right now is really Uh, revolutionary, right? Peter's confession is radical. He's confessing Jesus to be the king in the area of Caesar's city, Caesarea Philippi. That's where they're standing in this moment. He's saying, in Caesar's city, Jesus is the king. We can only suppose, I mean, like Peter right now is thinking, the revolution's about to begin. Blood is going to flow. Rome is going to be expelled. God's finally intervened. I bet Peter's got his hand on his AR, I mean his knife. At this moment, waiting for the fight to begin. That's what Peter is doing. He's pumped. And then Jesus does the whole dog whisperer thing. Don't tell anybody who I am. Be quiet. So then, next part. What does it mean for Jesus to be king in light of our expectations? Verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. (laughs) Do you ever read a passage and think, oh, dude, I'm so glad that was Peter and not me. (laughs) To have Jesus go, get behind me, Satan, right? If you've ever wondered why Jesus is telling everybody to be quiet about who he is, this passage actually explains it. Doesn't it make perfect sense to you now? This passage explains it. Like, at the, at the crisis moment, at the beginning of Act 2 in the Gospel of Mark, right here, Jesus is revealing a central part of who he is and how he's going to get there. This is how Jesus understood his identity. This is how he understood his destiny. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. Let's, let's just take this verse apart here. He began to teach them. He is beginning right here to teach his disciples about his suffering. This is the first of three what we would call passion predictions. The next two, Mark chapter 9 and Mark chapter 10. The fact that he begins to teach them right here is really important. Mark is making it extremely clear that this was Jesus' plan all all along. Throughout Jewish and Roman history, there had been many a failed uprising, many a failed Messiah. And the idea was that a crucified Messiah is a failed Messiah. To be crucified is to have ended the whole thing. Like the whole thing is over if you got crucified, right? A king who's hanging on a cross rather than sitting on a throne isn't a king in Roman culture. Before Jesus, a God who died rather than conquered was not a God at all. 
So Jesus begins to teach them how this is going to work. He calls himself the Son of Man. That's a paradoxical and offensive title. The Son of Man comes from, this title comes from Daniel chapter 7, where the Son of Man, representing Israel, goes before the Ancient of Days, God himself, and receives a kingdom that will not pass away. In that context, in Daniel, the Son of Man is the exalted messianic figure. And so now Jesus connects his messianic destiny and dignity as the Son of Man with suffering. Like, it was like a, it's like a category error for them. They don't get this at all. Those two thoughts don't fit together. He is saying that it's only through suffering that his kingdom will actually fully come. It's only in his suffering that Jesus finally defeats the devil. He atones for sin and conquers death. It's only through suffering that God will rule over all things, that he'll triumph over our ultimate enemies. It's only through Jesus' death that God lifts his just judgment from our lives. And so then he goes on to say he must suffer many things. And in a sense, think about it. His whole ministry is a suffering of many things. He suffers the attacks of his enemies. He suffers the foolishness and the misunderstanding of his own disciples. He suffers by moving into people's pain, not just keeping a safe distance. He suffers the assault of Satan and his demons. He, he, while his ministry is one of power and authority, it's also one of suffering and rejection. And so now the theme from Mark 8 on really moves towards his suffering. And his disciples, if they stay with him, they will suffer as well. To be a follower of Jesus is actually to enter into his suffering and his resurrection. And then the next piece, rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. Jesus is going to be rejected by the establishment. Those who claim to know and love and worship God are going to reject Jesus. Like he's laying the whole thing out. See, one of the reasons Mark wrote this this way is he's making the point to his Roman audience that Jesus knew what he was doing all along. That a crucified Messiah is not a failed Messiah. That's the reason he wrote it this way. And then after the rejection, that he must be killed. The word must there a couple times is critical. It's not only like his destiny that he foresaw coming, it actually has to happen. If Jesus does not die, if Jesus is not the Passover lamb who is sacrificed, then we're lost. Then we have no way to connect with God. The word must carries God's purpose in it. He has come to be the Isaiah 53 suffering servant of the Lord who will take away our sins. And then he says, after three days, rise again. He promises, I love this, that his horrible rejection of bloody death will be followed by a resurrection. At this point, the promise is completely incomprehensible to any Jewish audience. Their idea was that resurrection for the Jews would be corporate. They'd all be simultaneously raised. It only takes place at the end of the age. There was no expectation at all of an individual resurrection. It is a category mistake. No wonder the disciples are confused. Jesus is incomprehensible. 
they didn't understand the suffering, but by the time it gets to resurrection, it's like he just started babbling in a different language. They have no idea what he's talking about there, right? It's so incomprehensible that Peter takes him aside for a strong rebuke. It's one thing to misunderstand Jesus. Peter understands him completely and says, there ain't no way in cuss word that that's going to happen to you. There's just no way that's going to happen, Jesus. Like, that's not how the Messiah works? No. You can picture Peter doing that. Like, he spoke his mind, right? And, And I think that rebuke probably did sting Jesus a little bit. To share your deepest truth, the secret of who you are and what God's doing with your closest companions. It had to be an incredible moment. It was full of passion and emotion. And Peter's hostile response, I imagine that hurts, but it's part of the suffering, actually, that Jesus predicted. Because it's not going to be that long before Peter actually denies him and wanders off into the darkness. Because his messianic dream, Peter's messianic dream, is going to be completely and utterly shattered. His expectation of what Jesus was going to be like. And so Peter gets rebuked right back. The whole get behind me Satan thing is kind of strong. But I love the way in Mark, Jesus un- uh, Mark unpacks what that really means. You know? We've seen from the very beginning that there's a spiritual battle raging. Jesus is no sooner filled with the Spirit at his baptism than he encounters Satan in the wilderness. His whole ministry is launched by casting out demons. Jesus sees right through Peter to the devil himself. The enemy speaks through Peter's lips. Peter's absolutely correct that Jesus is meant to reign as king, but it's going to come through suffering and death. It comes in a different way. And so, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Here's here's the deal. Peter's best inclination to protect Jesus actually didn't come from God. Jesus says it's coming from Satan. Think about that. His best inclination to try to protect Jesus from suffering Jesus says, that's not God at all. Sometimes I wonder how our best inclinations to protect ourselves from suffering might not be God at all. They might, we might be actually listening to a whole different voice. Peter loves Jesus. He doesn't want him to suffer and die. He wants him to ride in triumph into Jerusalem. But he's viewing Jesus through a simply human lens. Sometimes our advice to one another to avoid suffering, I don't know. It could be just the opposite of what God's doing in somebody's life. Sometimes the way that we think about that, our denial of ourselves, we'll get to that in a second. Like we live in a culture today that says, don't deny yourself anything. Self-denial is like horribly wrong to do to yourself. You're going to need lots of therapy if you deny yourself anything that you really want. I wonder how often we have in mind the things of men versus the things of God. Well, just a question. Go be offended by that one on your own. We can all identify with Peter here, right? We come to God and we say, God, here's what I need to happen. Here's what I need the crypto stock market to do. 
Here's what, here's what my neighbor needs to be able to do so I feel okay today. God, here's what needs to happen to my health. God, here's what needs to happen with my boss, with my coworker, with my employees, with my students, with my professor today. I wonder in what ways we might be telling God how to be God in the same way that Peter was telling God how to be God. And so then that gets to what, is this, what does it mean for Jesus to be king for me personally? Verse 34. Then he cr- called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Like if anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Oh, Welcome to Act 2 in the Gospel of Mark. Like we're right in the middle of it now. You know, what I love about this, if the kingdom of God only came in power and we didn't have the compassion that we saw at the beginning of this passage, God's love and compassion, if the kingdom of God only comes in power, you and I, as God's enemies, would be fully and completely overrun. Now, you might say to yourself, I'm not God's enemy. Uh, Romans chapter 5. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? The suffering and the resurrection is right there in that verse. The power of the kingdom of God is self-sacrificial love. The power of the kingdom of God is not in political parties. The power of the kingdom of God is not in churches. The power of the kingdom of God is not in ideological beliefs. The power of the kingdom of God is not in being able to check off all the right boxes or whatever thing you're checking off boxes in. The power of the kingdom of God is not your self-actualization and self-fulfillment. The power of the kingdom of God is in self-sacrificial love. That's what Jesus shows us. That's the life of God. That's the whole purpose of Christmas is Good Friday. But the whole thing that it's aiming for is that. Jesus' broken body breaks our pride. It breaks our self-sufficiency and it releases us to lay down our arms. In order for love to be healing, it has to suffer with us. That's the incarnation. That's God coming to us. And then it has to suffer for us. That's Jesus on the cross, substitution. He never abandons his kingly rule and power. Jesus never abandons his power, the power of God. He simply exercises it in an incredibly surprising way. He lays down his life. That's a whole different way to address the problems of the world. That's a whole different way to, than addressing the, the way that we often address problems in our families. That's a whole different way to address issues that are going on in your own life. 
he exercises his power in a super surprising way by humbling himself. He actually breaks what rules over us. So to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, you don't, always, you don't only have to become like little children, you have to be willing to die. Die to our old rebellious life and then rise to new life with Jesus. Drive to, die to our kind of journey towards self-actualization and then let God show you who he says that you are. Which is way more beautiful than you could make up yourself being. We die not in fear and terror of God's judgment, but in his loving arms. It's only, we, we only really die as we see Christ crucified and we fall down before such a, a perfect sacrifice, such holy love. As Jesus goes to die, we go to die. That's what actually in a couple weeks baptism is really all about. And then death is not the last word. The last word is resurrection. God is making all things new. So what's God inviting you to today? So much of us want a kind of a triumphalist Christianity. We want to be among the winners, not the losers. We want successful lives, successful churches. We want overpowering arguments for the gospel. We want money. We want fame. We want more likes. We want what Peter wanted, oftentimes in the way Peter wanted it. Here's the deal. I think Jesus wants to bring you and I an amazing life to the fullest extent possible, John 10.10. But never forget that we're following Jesus, not some consumer-oriented Christianity that puts Jesus on a bobblehead. We're following the real Christ, the suffering servant who defeats all sin, all rebelliousness, all sickness, all death, and the way he does it is self-sacrificial love. And he invites us to follow in those footsteps. It's an invitation to give up the dreams like Peter had for a dream that's way better. And I wonder what God might be putting his finger on in your life. When God puts his finger on something in our life, like with the blind man, it's to bring healing. It's not to squish you under his thumb. It's to actually bring healing. And I pray that you were as confronted today as Peter was. And I pray that you will turn towards Jesus as Peter was learning to do. And don't worry. If it didn't happen today, there's three more of these passages coming up. And they're glorious. And we'll hit them all from a little different angle. Does that make sense? Cool. That's my talk. Why don't you guys stand up? One of my friends was reflecting. Michael, I don't know if you've gotten better over the years or worse. You end your messages now. We're just like, I'm done. Stand up. (laughs) Yeah, I got tired of the like, going around it a long time and trying to do some kind of cool ministry time. I just think the Holy Spirit just wants to move in our lives if we'll submit and surrender to him. So, Heavenly Father, gracious Son and Holy Spirit, would you meet with us right now? Lord, would you come? We welcome you. We welcome your healing touch, your gracious healing touch. And Lord, we welcome your loving confrontation 
of the way our expectations of what you want to do are not necessarily what you want to do. Thank you for your sacrificial love for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for the way that you talked about it, and then you talked about it, and then you talked about it, and then you did it. You left no doubt what you were up to. Even though in the moment it's really hard to understand, looking back as we do now, we can see it. And so sometimes, God, in the moment for us, it's really hard to follow your self-sacrificial way of life. It doesn't seem like sacrificing ourselves or our resources is actually going to bring any of the stuff that we want to see. Would you give us a confidence and a trust in you? Here's the deal. I think God's actually inviting all of us in some way, shape, or form this week to embrace his suffering, his laying down of rights, his self-sacrificial love. I think he's actually inviting us to embrace actively living that out in some area of our lives this week. And it would be wildly presumptuous of me to try to tell you where that is. I think the Holy Spirit just wants to identify that for you. And so, Lord, would you begin to point out areas for each of us where our expectations of what you should do are off course with what you're really doing and that you're actually inviting us to embrace your way of life. It could be with a family member where God's inviting you to be self-sacrificial. You're inviting his presence and power, but you're going to do it in a way that sacrifices something. There's, a, there's stuff that God's inviting you to do in that way. It just, as I'm praying right now, it just dawns on me, oh, that's what he was doing with me yesterday. I didn't even see that. Holy Spirit, come. It could be in a work situation. He's actually inviting you to, to sacrifice, to lay down. And in that, he'll do something that you never could have done by standing up for your rights, by demanding what you think you deserve. For some of us, we're you know, on our own. We are trying to get God to fit into the way we think we view ourselves. And he is saying to you right now, I want you to lay that down and let me show you who you really are. Your way of trying to do that on your own doesn't actually work. Can I show you a much better way? So Holy Spirit, would you come? on the ministry team make your way up here please we're going to pray for one another these guys are going to lead us in some worship we just want to invite the presence of God to give us 
allow us to hear his voice and give us courage to respond and actually live it out. And it takes courage to say, man, maybe I got this all wrong. Maybe this thing I was fighting for is actually not what I'm supposed to be fighting for. And of course, we would love to pray for anything going on in your life. Any kind of um, emotional or physical pain, trauma, financial trauma that you're facing. Anything that's going on in your life, we'd love to pray for. And if you're thinking other people have way bigger issues, I'm not going to waste time bringing mine up there. Don't buy that lie. That's just a lie to keep you isolated. We need the body of Christ to be healthy. We need one another. And this is an opportunity to ask for prayer and healing. And then as God's highlighting a place where maybe, just maybe, there's an inkling, maybe, I'm supposed to approach this differently through self-sacrificial love. Come on up and get some prayer. Because it's going to take courage to identify that and walk that out. But that's who we are. That's the kind of people that we are. We will pray for one another. We will walk beside one another. And we will follow the way of Jesus. So hang out in here for a little bit. Allow God to speak to you. Get some prayer. Let's worship a little bit more. Other than that, God bless you. Thanks for being at the Vineyard today.